Thank you, Dave, for teaching us new songs. Hopefully, you can all hear me. That a yes? Good. I guess I could have said uh, good morning and see how many responses I got. Probably a better way to go. As an introduction to the book of Ezra, let me ask you, are you happy to have this book in your hand? We're, we're uh, in some way, beginning to look at a new phase of God's using of his word in the Bible. So, if, if, uh, so we're in the book of Ezra. You could go ahead and turn there. The book of Ezra. And Charlie introduced us to the timeline a little bit. This is after the exile to Babylon, as you remember, God uh, brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and he brought them to the land of Israel, and there they served before God uh, for some years. They did a very poor job at it, and eventually God, in judgment, uh, exiled them. He used the uh, kingdom of Babylon to conquer the land. Uh, many people obviously died, but uh, those who didn't die, the king of Babylon carried away to Babylon. They became exiles in the land of Babylon, and that's where we've, we've seen some of the stories like of Esther of last week. Uh, we also saw the return from, uh, the first return from Babylon happened a couple of weeks ago, at least in our study over here, uh, when Zerubbabel brought back about uh, 50,000 men plus women and children, so maybe 150, 200,000 people came back and he rebuilt the temple. Now we're talking about about 50 years after that, we find Ezra, he's still in Babylon. And uh, if you turn to Ezra chapter 7, we could start reading in verse 6. It says, This Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Netinim came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. So this group of uh, five verses or so really comprises a summary of his life, and we're about to get into more detail. Okay, so it talks here about him going to, uh, to Jerusalem. Well, that's not going to happen for another couple of chapters. This is just a summary. And uh, the first thing I wanted to note is what Ezra was. It says he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses. That was a new profession. Uh, the job of a scribe was literally to copy the books of the Bible. So, for example, uh, the law of Moses was given. Moses actually literally wrote out those first five books, and that was one copy. Today... We uh, scan it or enter it into a computer and we print out books by the thousand or millions and we easily distribute it. Well, in those days, they didn't have that kind of technology. They needed a human being to copy it word by word by word. And that was the job of Ezra. Well, by now we've had almost the entire Old Testament assembled. Most of the books of the Old Testament have been written. They're mostly uh, the books of history uh, going from Moses to uh, David and the later kings, uh, the prophecies of the different prophets. That's, those are the books, and those books were ge- being given to Ezra, and Ezra was copying them down one word at a time. One word at a time. Well, that's why I asked you this morning whether you're happy you have this book in your hand, because Ezra was one of the few privileged people who basically had this in his hand in those days, because it was part of his job to copy it. Uh, otherwise, you'd have to be uh, someone pretty high up, maybe the head of a synagogue, to really have access to a book like that. Well, Ezra was one of those. And the Lord has moved in Ezra's heart in a special way 
so that we have in verse 10 about Ezra, that Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. He didn't just want to have this book in his hand. He wanted to know what it said. He sought it. He wanted, he wanted the next book. Okay, I see this. I, w- I want the one I haven't copied yet. I wanted to have a chance to read that and copy that one. And he didn't just want to know it. He wanted to do it. He wanted to apply it to his life. And not just that, he wanted to then pass it on to others and make other people know of the Word of God. A few years ago, uh, I think most of the people here know Brother Bill. Brother Bill put forth a challenge to memorize Psalm 119. And uh, I was a few of the uh, brave souls that picked up the challenge. Uh, the reason I say brave souls because it's the longest chapter in the Bible. It has 168 verses. And for those who memorized it... Um, are familiar that one of the difficulties in memorizing that psalm is that there's a lot of similar words in it. It has the word commandments and statutes and laws, all different words describing the Word of God, different aspects of the Word of God. And you have to remember as you memorize it first, well, which one did it use this time? Was it statutes or laws or commandments or words or judgments or testimonies? But they really all were talking about the Word of, of God. Well, uh, at the time, Brother Bill told me that uh, he believed that that psalm was written by Ezra. And I didn't understand why until I really prepared about Ezra. And I saw, yes, this man loved the Word of God. And you read verses in Psalm 119 like, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. That was Ezra. He loved the law of God. He loved the Word. He loved this book. He was happy he had this book in his hand. And he, he... he delighted to get into it and find out more about the Lord and what God wanted him to do. And then he wanted to do it and to tell other people about it too. All right, the other thing we see in the, those uh, summary verses about the life of Ezra, we actually see it twice, the end of verse 6 and again the uh, end of verse 9. It says, according to the good hand of his God upon him. God has his hand upon Ezra. We, we've... Uh, cited this verse before as we were studying about the character traits of people in the Old Testament. Uh, this verse uh, says in Second Chronicles 69, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those of whose heart is loyal to him. In Ezra, God found someone whose heart was loyal to him. And God was behind him and blessing his work. And we'll see that God will use Ezra to do one of the most important works that were done in the Bible, or in the Old Testament. Well, what is the work that Ezra did? Well, he wasn't like Zerubbabel. He didn't build the temple. That was something Zerubbabel did. He wasn't like Nehemiah that will come next. Nehemiah rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. They had great construction projects that people might admire them for. for. There's a clue to it in verse 7 when he talks about the return. So, by the way, what... What, what we do know about him, so Zerubbabel came first. He brought about maybe 200,000 people. Uh, Ezra follows after 50 years later. He probably brought about 5,000 men. So again, if you multiply it by four to account for women and children, maybe 20,000 people. So that was a great thing he did, right? He, he brought more Jews from Babylon to the land. If you look at the Jews he brought to Babylon in verse 7, it says some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Netinim came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. It's interesting, in, in, uh, in the book of Ezra, but under Zerubbabel, and then in Nehemiah, you see these long lists of people that come, and, and he names them in different ways of importance. What's unique here is really, he's talking about the position. These are all people who have to do with the worship of God at the temple. And that's what we'll find, is really Ezra's desire and, and the, what God used him was to restore true worship to himself in the temple in Jerusalem. Well, yes, the temple was rebuilt by Zerubbabel, but as we'll see uh, in this book, there was a serious problem in the hearts of the people. The hearts of the people were not toward God. They were not worshiping God as they should. And that was really what God is going to use Ezra. He's going to, in, in the modern uh, 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 Christian phrases, he's going to revive Israel or bring revival to the nation of Israel, which they really needed at the time. And that's how God wanted to use Ezra. That's how we, we will see God using Ezra in this book. 
Okay. Uh, the next section we will read, starting in verse 11, is a long letter that was written by King Artaxerxes. And it's really uh, referred to in verse 6. The later part of verse 6 says that the king granted him, that is to Ezra, all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. So what we'll see here is a grant or a permit, something that the, the king of Persia wrote and gave to Ezra. And it's in response to something that Ezra asked of him. Now we don't actually have anywhere anything saying what Ezra asked the king for. This is one of those times that you have to kind of read between the lines to try to, to understand, well, what was going on? What did Ezra ask for the king that resulted in this long letter, in this proclamation of the king? So I'll do the reading, and you'll do the guessing. Okay, let's read um, in verse chapter 7, starting in verse 11. I'll read that to the end of the chapter. And think of this. This is a proclamation of the king, Artaxerxes, given to Ezra in response to some petition. What did Ezra ask for? What was Ezra's petition to the king? So Ezra chapter 7, verse 11. Now this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra, the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace, and so forth. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and whereas you are to carry the silver and the gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, and whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the provinces of Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people and the priests, are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. Now, therefore, be careful to buy with the money bulls, rams, lambs, with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. And whatever seems good to you and your brethren, do with the rest of the silver and the gold to do it according to the will of your God. Also, the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay for it from the king's treasury. And I, even I, Artaxerxes, the king, do issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently. Up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil and salt without prescribed limit. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it diligently be done for the house of the God of heaven, for why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Also, we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, nephinim, or servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and teach those who do not know them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods <coughs> or imprisonment. Uh, and then we see Ezra's response in verse 27. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem, and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered chief men of Israel to go up with me. All right, what do you think? What did Ezra ask for? What was his petition to the king? 
everything. Well, the king is giving him everything. So it, it, is, it, it can be difficult because of how much the king is giving him. What was it that Ezra actually asked for? Now, we do have a clue because Ezra says, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who had put such a thing as this into the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord, which in Jerusalem. So, the king, the, God added some things into the heart or the mind of the king that Ezra did not ask for. And in particular, he added those things that make the house of God beautiful. So probably the gold, the articles of gold, uh, maybe a, a tax exemption, uh, those, those various benefits that were given. Probably the main request is that we have for us uh, in verse 13, where he says, I issue a decree that all of those people in Israel, the priests, the Levites in my realm, who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. So that was probably his request. He probably asked for permission for them to go to Jerusalem. Okay, uh, so there's a couple of questions here. Why would he need permission? And uh, the other one is, why did he want to go? And uh, maybe why did these other people want to go as well? So we have to kind of backtrack in our minds, well, what's going on here? Okay, Ezra uh, picked up the, uh, you know, wants to do the, law, the will of the Lord. He's, he has the Bible in front of him. He's reading, he's searching in it. He wants to do what God tells him to do. And uh, you may not know it, if you were to count all the laws of God in the books of Moses, you will count 613 laws. Now, about half of those laws, Ezra could not keep. Doesn't matter how much he wanted to, he couldn't do them. And the reason is they had to do with the worship of God in the temple. For example, they were supposed to, to offer uh, animal sacrifice as an atonement for sin or different types of worship. There's only one place they could do it, and that's the temple. They couldn't just do it wherever they wanted to. That was their mistake all those years in Israel. They kept offering it on every high hill and to other gods besides the true God. They, he had to do it at the temple. And, there's actually, and there's, there were feasts of the Lord to be celebrated. There were a lot of things that God wanted them to do that could only be done at the temple. And here Ezra is, is studying the word of God day after day. He wants to do the word of God day after day. I imagine he was growing frustrated. I want to do this. This is one of the things God told me to do, and I can't. And finally he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to do this. And we know he didn't just search the law of God and didn't just want to do it. He wants to tell other people. So there he is telling other people about all these other things they can do to please the Lord, all these other ways to worship the Really, the only way to really come and worship the Lord, he was telling. And so he was stealing the hearts of people around him. At the end, about 20,000 people wanted to go with him to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Okay, well, why does he need a permit from the king? Well, you know, in those days, 20,000 people couldn't just get up, pick up all their belongings, and start traveling along one of the king's highway uh, to a place uh, hundreds of miles away, maybe about 1,000 miles away by road. And expect not to be stopped by some official and say, hey, what are you guys doing? <laughs> Is this insurrection against the king? What's going on? They couldn't just do it. They had to have a permit. And apparently the only way to get the permit was to go in before the king. And that's really what's ending, uh, bringing Ezra before him. Now, I don't know about you, but this would be something that would make me a little bit nervous. Having to go before the king of kings and having to make a petition like that. And, and we know Ezra did too. He says in verse 28, he's, he's thanking God at the end to, that he extended mercy to him, to Ezra, before the king and his counselors and before the king's mighty princes. They could have just, you know, they could have done anything. They could have said, well, you know, permit denied. Or they could have said, well, you must be planning some insurrection against the king, so, you know, we'll commit you to prison and torture you and find out, you know, exactly what's going on here. I mean, this wasn't an easy thing to show up before the king of Persia and say, you know, me and 20,000 other people want to leave the center of your kingdom and go to, you know, where there used to be our homeland. This, is, this was a serious thing. So how would Ezra do it? How would he approach the king and try to convince the king to let him go back? And uh, I don't know about you, but when I have to talk to men of the world about something I need, I'm often shy to talk about the things of the Lord. And uh, that's, uh, I, I don't know if, if you talked about it during the Sunday school class. I looked a little bit at, uh, at the passage you were studying, and it's about witnessing. We often lose opportunities to witness to people. 
Um, someone might ask me, what are you doing for, thanks, for uh, the 4th of July? Well, I'm, I'm going to be out in a parade handing out uh, gospel literature, telling people about the Lord. Well, I may not want to tell him that, and I'll just tell him, I'm, I'm going to a parade. I'll be at the three-month 4th of July parade, because I'm uncomfortable to talk about the things of the Lord in front of them, which is really a shame. It, it, it's, uh, Jesus said this, he said, uh, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he appears before him, uh, when, he, uh, when he appears uh, in heaven with the holy angels. So we don't want to be ashamed. We want to be excited about the things of the Lord. We want to be willing to tell people about the things of the Lord. And, and there's testimony that comes along with it. And we see that that's what Ezra did here before the king. And, and there's a number of ways we can see it. Uh, for one... The king is extremely familiar with the method of worship in Jerusalem. He mentions all the different animals that Ezra is going to need, the, the salt, the oils, the wine, you know, he, the different kind of people that are going to be involved in the worship. It's very clear that Ezra went before the king, and he just told the king about the worship of God in Jerusalem and says, this is what we want to do. The king, this is what God wants us to do, and this is what me and these 20,000 other people want to do. We want to go to, to the God of heaven and worship him like this in Jerusalem. And uh, this had such an impact on the king that he's interested in it. Okay, well, let me give some too. Here's some money. When you get there, offer some animals for me. And I'd like to assist in this. I want to participate in the worship of this God. What, what a testimony. And, uh, and, and the tax exemption and all those other things. So by willing to go uh, before the king and really tell him why he wanted to do this. And I don't think it was necessarily difficult for everybody. He was so excited about the things of God and the worship of God in Jerusalem. He really he, he gave a testimony to the king and helped the king get a glimpse of who God is as well. So an encouragement to us as we're willing to tell people the reason we're doing things and bring the Lord into it, it's really a chance for them to, to see our testimony. It's really a chance, in some sense, it's a cheap testimony. It's easy, an easy opportunity to bring up the things of the Lord in discussions with other people. Okay, uh, so Ezra is encouraged, and now he's getting ready to go on this trip. Now, before we get to Jerusalem, just a couple of stops here I want to make along the way as we see him preparing for it that might be worth noticing. In chapter 8 and verse 15, it says, Now I gathered them by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there three days. And I looked among the people and the priests and found none of the sons of Levi there. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnatan, Yerib, Elnatan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leaders, and also for Yoyarib and Elnatan, men of understanding. By the way, there were three Elnatans in the group. And I gave them a command for Ido, the chief man at the place Kasipia, and I told them, what they should say to Ido and his brethren, the Netinim, at the place Kasipia, that they should bring us servants for the house of our God. What's Ezra doing here? So he's got his 20,000 people gathered, he's ready to start the march, well, he's searching among them, and he's noticing there's no Levite. Well, Ezra really wants to do everything God said to do in worshiping God. And the Levites play a role. Some of the things that have to be done in the worship of God. We know there's the priests. The priests have to be there, the temple. There's a lot of things that are in place. But there's one thing missing. There's the Levites. And some of the things could not be done without the Levites. And Ezra is not willing to leave until he has everything he needs. And so, and so he goes and he sends his people to gather uh, some, some of the Levites uh, to him, really for the house of God. He wants, he wants to really worship God as God has said. And he's, he's going to make sure he has all his eyes dotted and his T's crossed so that he, he will be able to do it. Um, the other things to note is there really can be consequences. There was the invitation to go out and worship God. It's interesting. Clearly, Ezra has been talking to people about this. Like we tell, people have been stimulated on their own to come and worship God like God has said. Uh, it, it, they're called in one point in one of the later chapters, those who trembled at the word of God. There, there was a lot of excitement. There were a lot of people that were now excited about the, the work uh, what, what God was doing through Ezra, going and worshipping God like God has said to him in the temple. Uh, the, in a sense, the revival started in Babylon. It didn't start in Jerusalem. Uh, but somehow, you know, the Levites are just not with it. 
you know, they're not interested in old things that are talked about, about worshiping uh, God. And it's really a lesson to us. God's given all of us calls to be part of his body and worshiping him and serving him, building his kingdom. We're all given different gifts. And when somebody doesn't want to respond to the call of God, it really has an impact on the whole. Here are the Levites. They're impacting the whole congregation. The whole congregation has to sit and wait until there's some Levite that's willing to go with them and participate in the worship. And so we shouldn't allow ourselves to slow down. We should join in in the worship of God, in the call of God to serve him in the body of Christ. We have a role to play. If we don't do it, the whole body suffers, is what uh, the Bible tells us. Second thing to note here is in verse 21, uh, Ezra says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God and seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road, because we have spoken to the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. And uh, really here the issue is, so, so there's danger, okay? He's a thousand miles away, and the roads then are not as safe as the road today. And besides for robber and thieves on the way, there's people who really hate them and they don't want to see them coming to the land. There's an enemy on the road. We saw a little bit of that in Zerubbabel's day. We'll see a little bit more of that in Nehemiah's uh, day. And, and, you know, they're not soldiers. These are just, you know, scribes and, you know, people of the land, not people that, that are necessarily equipped to battle anybody. And they have their wives and they have their little ones with them. So they're in real danger. And Ezra could have asked the king, especially when the king was getting excited, oh yeah, this is great, I want to have a hand in this. Well, how about a company of soldiers and horsemen to just make sure we get there? That would have been a pretty easy request, and I think the king would have offered it. Well, Ezra, one of the things he just told the, Lord, told the king is, the hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him. But his hand, his power, and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. For Ezra to ask that would be inconsistent with what the Word of God taught. Okay? The Word of God said, Ezra, you're safe. You are seeking the Lord with all your heart. You're following Him. God is protecting you. That's the Word of God to Ezra. Now, Ezra could have had some doubts in his heart or felt, well, let's be extra sure and ask for this. That would be inconsistent with what the Word of God is teaching. And he was concerned about the impact of the testimony to the king. Uh, I assume most of you know of George Mueller. George Mueller, he was well known uh, about 100 years ago, 150 years ago. He, was, uh, he started orphanage houses in England, and uh, he fed into care of hundreds and even thousands of orphans. Well, what's so special about that? The special thing about him is that Mueller never asked anybody for money. I shouldn't say that. He only asked one person for money, and that was God. Okay, all he did is he would pray, and the Lord would provide. And and those wonderful stories about uh, wagons with with uh, uh, milk containers in them breaking in front of the orphanages, and they have nothing to do, so they walked them in, or or a, a baker that had too much bread and he brought it in, and he fed the people. All he did, he, he asked for God. Well, something I didn't know is that at the very beginning of his ministry. What Mueller really wanted, it's not that he didn't love the orphans, he loved them and he wanted to take care of them, but what he really wanted was to prove to the world that God is a prayer-answering God. And, and he did his things, a lot of the things he did wasn't just to, because he cared for the orphans, but he wanted the world to see God for who God really was. God, the God of today is able to meet our needs, my needs and this thousand of other people's needs, just the same he did in the old days in the Bible. God hasn't changed. That's what Mueller wanted to show the world, and that's what he did. And that's what Ezra was concerned about, and what we should be concerned about with our lives. Does our life show to the world that God is real? I can go and tell people all kinds of things about God. If my life is inconsistent with that, I'm taking away from the testimony, the power of the testimony. So we should be living, as Mueller and as Ezra did, trusting the Lord, trusting God to protect us and to provide for us, rather than 
uh, with our mouth saying something, but then with our action really showing that we're not trusting in God in our lives. Okay, let's go ahead and fast forward to Jerusalem in chapter 9, verse 1. So they've arrived in Jerusalem. They finally got to worship God as they wanted to. They got to go to the temple. They got to offer sacrifices. Can't imagine Ezra being a lot more excited. Well, he has some bad news. Uh, God had a, a purpose, a job for Ezra that Ezra did not know about. He thought he, you know, his job was completed. He came. He brought all these people with him to worship God as God really wanted them to, be, wanted them to worship him. Well, there was a bigger job waiting for him. He didn't even know about it. When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, when leaders, he's talking about the leaders of the other people who came with him. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed is intermingled with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and the rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fastings, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God and said, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to the captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. And now for a little while grace has been shown from the Lord our God, and to leave us a remnant, to escape, to give us a peg in his holy place, and that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins and give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the land, with their abominations which they have filled it, from one end to another with their impurity. Now therefore, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and live it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people of these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us, so that there would be no remnant or survival? O Lord, God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. So what, what's, what's happening? Well, the people of the land, the people who came perhaps with the first uh, return, maybe those 150, 200,000 people, are beginning to intermarry with the people of the land. So the other nations that were around, not the Jews. Well, what's so, what's so bad about that? Well, there's words that keep repeating here. Uh, for example, abominations, uncleanness. And... What God is saying isn't that the Jews somehow are better than the people that were around them, but he went out of his way and took out of this world a people to himself. That's the holy seed that he's referring to. A people that were going to have a special relationship with him, that he was going to use to reveal himself to the rest of the world. 
And they had to be kept away from those other people because those other people worshipped false gods. And in other ways were, were uh, doing all the things that God hated. And if his people would get mingled with them, they would follow them instead of following God. And, and that's, that's an issue that we have today too. It's called compromise with the world. Compromise with the world. What does that mean? Well, James says this, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whatever, whoever therefore wants to make himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When we talk about the world, we don't talk about uh, the physical planet in which we live. We don't even necessarily talk about the people that are in the world. We talk about the world value system. Uh, the things that make us want to be accepted by other people. We want other people to like us and, and, uh, to, uh, and to approve of us, for example. Well, there's certain things that we do. I want to be successful at work. I want to be the best chemical engineer out there. So people there would think that I'm someone special. Or I want to be the best uh, star in, in uh, my baseball team. Or... Those things I want so that people will think highly of me. Well, all those things are seeking after the world. That's what the world is about. Is, is us in some way uh, glorifying ourselves, seeking the glory of man, starting uh, really in the Garden of Eve, but we see it exemplified in, in Babel when they built the tower and said, let, let us make a name for ourselves so that everybody will gather uh, to us. We see an example of that today in the Olympics. Uh, my wife uh, was watching uh, the... Uh, the uh, ceremonies in the beginning of the Olympics, and it's just amazing how they glorify man, you know, one after another. Uh, and that's really the world. That's what God doesn't want us to be a part of. He wants us to be faithful, faithful to himself. He took us out of the world to be faithful to him. When we seek after the things of the world, what bothers God about it, it's we're forsaking him. He's diametrically opposed from this world value system. When we're seeking after that value system, really we're turning our back to God. We're being unfaithful to God. And that's why James uses words like adulterers and adulteresses. And that's what was happening. That's what, that's what was happening at the nation of Israel at the time. That's why Ezra is reacting in the way that he is. I mean, he, it's hard to find a word to describe what Ezra is going through. I was thinking of the word devastated. I couldn't think of a better one. I've never pulled my hair out, even though it might look like I have. You know, I don't have any beard to pull out. But that, he ripped his clothes. I mean, he's, he's crying out. Uh, and uh, he's not overreacting. In fact, God brought there somebody that had a heart like God so that they can show the people what God felt like. Really, what you're seeing in Ezra is how God felt about this treason or betrayal or unfaithfulness of the nation of Israel uh, to him. And uh, the wonderful thing is, is God, God had a good purpose in all this. He's bringing Ezra into the situation. Ezra is reacting as Ezra is. And God was doing it on purpose. And we, we see it in verse 10, chapter 10 as we pick up verse 1. Now while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large congregation of men, women, and children assembled to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Yechiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God, and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the counsel of my master and those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also will be with you. Be of good courage and do it. Then Ezra arose made the leaders, and made the leaders of the priests the Levites and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So they swore an oath. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Yehochanan, the son of Eliashib. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those of the captivity. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem 
to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem, and that whoever would not come within three days according to the counsel of the leaders and the elders, all his property would be confiscated, and he himself would be separated from the congregation of those from the captivity. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. I love the addition at the end of the heavy rain. Who's in charge of the rain, by the way? God, right. And, and really, God is in charge of this entire event. It's a wonderful example of really God going after his people and turning him back to himself. It obviously, he's using Ezra as a, as a vessel, and we would all love to be the vessel that God uses, but the wonderful thing is how God is going back after his people that were unfaithful to him, and he's turning them back to himself. And uh, that's what we see in verse uh, 10 that happens, is Ezra is like this uh, point of, uh, of gathering, or uh, Andy might might be familiar with this uh, chemical process. We call it precipitation a lot of time. You first, you need a little tiny nucleus that happens when you... Uh, it happens when you freeze water, for example. You may have seen a, a river beginning to freeze. Usually, there'll be just you know, little clamps or little uh, specks of ice, and they start getting bigger and bigger and growing. And Ezra is that, like that little speck, that little beginning that God uses. As people hear him pray, as they see him weep over the sin of the people, God is using them to convict them of their sin. And they start gathering to him, and they join him in really weeping and confessing over their sin. God is bringing, really, the whole nation of Israel into conviction of sin through this one man who had the heart of God to see what they did to the Lord. And through him, they recognize their sin, and they come to weeping and confessing. And really, we see here uh, a complete turning away from sin. It's interesting. They come to Ezra, and they tell him, come on, Ezra, there is hope now. And it's true. There was hope now for the first time. Once people see their sin, there is real hope. Because now they can really turn from their sin and receive the gracious, uh, the mercy, the gift of salvation of God. The first thing people need is to recognize their sin. And then all of God's blessings, as, as Charlie was reading from Ephesians, every blessing in the, spirit, in the heavenly places is ours. That what really is missing is that first conviction of sin. People realize that they were sinning against the Lord. So now there is hope, and they're asking everybody, okay, get up and, you know, restore it, fix things. Now, you, you know, you're the guy with the responsibility. And, uh, you know, he agrees, and he stands up, and he, he asks them to all, you know, say that that's what they're going to do, have them give an oath. But then he goes off and he's mourning in another room. And they have to do everything on their own alone. But the wonderful thing is God really stirred them their hearts. And you see, you know, they issue a proclamation. It wasn't him that said it. It was the elders and leaders of the land. They said, okay, everybody in here in three days, or we're going to excommunicate you. You're not going to be part of our community anymore. And that was really all their move. God has now really brought them into conviction of their sin. And really all Ezra has to tell them is what's the right thing to do. Well, yes, you should be putting away these foreign wives. Uh, we're going to fast forward now to the book of Nehemiah. Thirteen years later, so, it, really in this uh, restoring Israel to worship or spiritual revival, it hasn't fully happened yet. And uh, probably there was something that left to be done for Nehemiah. Nehemiah had to do something that was really going to bring the people there. And we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But uh, the time has come in uh, chapter 8 of Nehemiah. And again, this is 13 years later. And God is now finally going to move in the hearts of the people in, in bringing about uh, this revival, this restoration of the nation of Israel to himself. In uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1, Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which... The Lord has commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the seventh day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and the women and those who could understand all the ears of the people were attentive to the books of the law. 
So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose and beside him at his right hand. Then we have a list of people there. Okay, uh, I'm going to fast forward here to verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. All right. Uh, what we have here is unprecedented interest in the Word of God in the Bible. I don't think you'll find a passage like this anywhere, at least not before this time, where you really have the people on their own are being moved. Ezra wasn't doing anything unusual. He was being faithful to God in doing what he's been doing, searching the Word of God, applying it to his life, and teaching others. He's been doing it for 13 years. And the Bible encourages us. It says... Uh, and let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. So it was good. He was doing exactly what he should do. But he didn't do anything special. The only thing that might have happened since is Nehemiah has just finished rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. It was God's timing. It was God's work. And the people come to Ezra and say, bring out the law. We want to hear it. And he's reading it, and you're seeing they're attentive. The whole people is standing there attentive to the word of God. You know, I don't see that happening a lot. You know, I've been in Berkeley, and, you know, there's a lot of people who like to stand up there and, you know, start speaking out to the multitudes as they pass by. They usually don't get much attention uh, from other people. And certainly, occasionally, I've seen people try to do it for the Lord, to speak, you know, preaching from the Bible, open, open uh, uh, street preaching. You know, and they'll, you know, may get five or ten people around them as the multitudes rush by. You don't see everybody just standing and listening to the word of God. And they were. They were standing and listening attentively. And then this response in chapter 9. It says the people are weeping. They have to tell the people, come down, stop crying. God doesn't want you to cry right now. Because the people were hearing the law of God and they were weeping. It was a response to the word of God you don't see very often. And yet God was doing it uh, through Ezra. Now, in uh, verse 13, we continue. Now, on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra the the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. What we see them doing here is they've heard the word of God, they've understood it, now they also want to do it. And so the leaders are coming. They want to know exactly what God wants to be done in this feast. They're, they're standing right before the feast of the tabernacle is at the, the door. And they want to know exactly how God wants them to worship. This is what Ezra has been desiring to do. And finally, the people are on board. They want to worship God as God wants them to worship Him. And uh, they would find, uh, I'm not going to read through all of it, that God wanted them to take branches of trees and build booths and they were to live in the booth with him for seven days. Or they were to live in the booth for seven days. And uh, we would really have to go back to the book of Leviticus to understand some of the purpose. But really, every feast of the Lord, God had a particular picture he was trying to present to people of Israel. Something about himself he wanted to reveal to them. Or something about the relationship with him. The feast of the tabernacles is the only one in which the only thing they're supposed to do is sit for seven days and rejoice. Kind of a strange feast. That was their job. And we see that's really what they're doing in, in uh, verse 17. So the whole congregation of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booth for since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until the day the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. That's what they did. They sat in booths and they rejoiced for seven days. But this time... They weren't just pretending to do it. And in fact, it's interesting. It says since the days of Joshua, this hasn't happened. Wow, we are talking about a thousand years here because uh, Joshua brought the people in around 1500 B.C. and now you're about 500 B.C. A thousand years, it wasn't celebrated. Well, because it was never really in their hearts. It was never in the hearts of the people to just sit before the Lord and rejoice for seven days. But this is what God wanted to them. It was a picture of the fellowship they were supposed to have with God in the wilderness. As they left Egypt and traveled with God for 40 years, there was supposed to be this close fellowship with God. And that's really what God wants 
to have with us. It wasn't, it's not just that God doesn't want us to walk with the world. It's not just that God wants us to confess our sins and repent of our sins. God wants us to come into a close fellowship with himself. He wants us to rejoice. This is the true worship of God is really nothing but rejoicing in him, appreciating God, for, coming to know God for who he is, and simply enjoying and rejoicing in him. And I don't know where you are uh, this morning. I see uh, different faces here. I know some of you love to do just that. You, you love coming here on Sunday morning and just rejoicing and worshiping the Lord. And maybe some of you haven't, and you're confused about what is it that God really wants from you. Well, at the very end, that's all God wants you to do, is to come to know him and to rejoice in him and enjoy him forever. He wants to have a relationship with you. We celebrate uh, Valentine's Day today, and you know, you're supposed to bring something nice to somebody and make them feel uh, feel good, and we talk a lot about relationships between men and women. The one who made us, the one who made men and women and created the relationship between men and women, created us to have a relationship with himself. And the love that he wants us to be between men and women and uh, uh, parents and their children is the love that he wants us to experience with him. I was playing with my son yesterday before going to sleep, and it's a joy to play with him because he's just happy to be with me. <laughs> you know, he'll, he'll squeal, he'll be light, he'll wave his arm, and I ha- I, there's nothing I need to do. Just being with me is enough to delight him. That's all God wants out of us, is to just be delighted to be with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for men like Ezra who love your word and uh, delight nothing better than doing it and teaching it to others. Lord, we pray that we might be like him, that our Bible might be as precious to us as your word was to him, that you might be able to use us in great ways too. Our greatest prayer, Lord, is that we will have this same joy and rejoicing that uh, you wanted to have with the children of Israel. We pray here if there's anyone who hasn't found that joy and rejoicing in you yet, that they might find it soon. In Jesus' name, amen.